How long does it take to visit a faraway land, to bring a memory back in full color, to leap into the past or the future? With a good dime story, it can happen at the speed of just a few simple words. This is Dime Stories, your chance to go everywhere a story can take you in three minutes or less. Welcome to the Dime Stories podcast. I'm Jennifer Simpson, director of Dime Stories International. And I'm Nicholas Thurkettle, author and regular at Dime Stories Orange County. Every month, writers gather at local Dime Stories chapters and share their stories, fiction or nonfiction. No guidelines, just one rule, only three minutes to take us on a journey. The three favorite stories from each event are archived on our website, dimestories.org. And in this podcast, we're putting together some of the best of the best to share with you. Recently, my eye doctor broached the subject of bifocals. I protested, I'm not old enough. Besides, it seems so unfair. I got my first pair of glasses when I was seven, and my long distance vision has been worsening incrementally ever since. I thought that gave me a pass for bifocals. I was wrong. So far, I've been getting by with cheap drugstore reading glasses. As a writer and a reader, diminishing vision has been the worst part of aging. The best part is knowing myself better understanding my weaknesses and my strengths. I'm more confident and more understanding of others and more appreciative of their idiosyncrasies. Bottom line, we can choose whether or not to learn from life, but we can't choose whether or not to get older. That's coming for all of us, no matter what. In this episode, our storytellers share a few different takes on aging. Jill Badonsky wants to prove that you can try something new at any age, but it might not be easy or dignified, as she learns, there ain't no ballerinas in hip-hop. You want to take a hip-hop class, but you're afraid you won't fit in because you are somewhere over 50, and they spin and hop them complicated rapid-fire choreographed moves that could render you breathless and ridiculous, so maybe you should stay with the Stairmaster. Hip-hop. You picture a bunch of youngsters from the inner city clad in backward caps and pants, half-masked, but much to your surprise, there's mostly white soccer moms and very white college girls. There's even some women that are at least 10 years older than you and an Asian woman in the first row who is two hip-hop moves behind everyone else, so you think you have a chance of fitting in until you look in the mirror and you see that everyone else's head in the class ends at your shoulders and you realize that you're in a troop of stocky, short people because hip-hop works best when you're short and stocky. And in the mirror, you look like an awkward giraffe in one of those jungle pictures where the giraffe's head is high above the rest of the herd. And you think that because of that, you don't fit in. And people are looking at you like, you don't fit in. You blonde ballerina with the long legs, but you stay. And you decide that maybe they're just staring at the hip hugger mishap because the top of your hip huggers are far below the waistline of your big girl panties that you forgot you had on, and there's two inches of peach underwear sticking out of the top of your black dance pants, and you don't want to draw attention to them, so you just leave them that way. And Miss Trina Lyons, the hip-hop teacher who moves like a movie queen in the coolest, baddest style of breathtaking, beat-perfect precision hip-hop, is leading a dance move where you and the herd walk around in a circle, swinging arms and that old gangster tood, and you look in the mirror and realize that your tood looks a lot like Marsha Brady with PMS. 
So you smile, and Miss Trina says to the class, I don't want you to smile. There's no smiling in here. This move is about, I don't want to see you no more, bitch. So I'm thinking, I don't want to see you no more, bitch. And I'm moving like that, and she's coming over, and she comes over, and she says, there ain't no ballerinas in hip-hop, and it's that dreaded time because she's saying that to you. And the class is laughing because she's imitating how you point your toe instead of doing the hip-hop foot slide, and you smile, and then you stop smiling because you're not supposed to smile, and you don't know what you're supposed to do, and she starts to demonstrate the next gangsta move, and you start to follow, and then you follow, and then you shift from the mental to the visceral, from the self-conscious to the heavy bass, the profane language, N-words and all. In the tandem of the hypnotic beat, you begin to free the incarceration of all those accumulated years of stagnated fury, the convoluted intellectualizations of redesigns of that shit that you turned around in circles in your epiphanies and put far too much energy trying to stay where you didn't belong. Thank you. But I'm not finished. <laughs> I like how you can feel both the rush of excitement in her story and her uncontainable energy in reading it. The Dime Stories microphone is a unique thrill, and I love hearing it work on people. Jill Badonsky, M.Ed., is founder of Kaizen Muse Creativity Coaching Certification Training, author-illustrator of three books about creativity, including The Nine Modern Day Muses and A Bodyguard, Ten Guides to Creative Inspiration, The Almanac, A Daily Dose of Wonder, and The Muses Inn, An Owner's Manual to Your Creativity. She is a retreat leader, performance poet, inspirational humorist, and a columnist at The Muses Inn. She hip-hops and lives in San Diego with two cats and a bougainvillea. A long life with someone can be both a blessing and a curse. You know them more deeply and more meaningfully than anyone else. But on the other hand, your life together becomes a series of negotiations with strange habits that will probably never go away. Marame Moffat from our Albuquerque chapter divines this secret of life in her piece, Tiny Bananas. My husband likes sameness, and maybe that's why we're still married. Over the 50 years we've known each other, neither of us has changed that much. Oh yeah, the wrinkles, the bellies, the kids, but basically we're the same people from 1963. I suppose I've come towards his position. I can eat a good dish for three days running if that's the case. If a roast or soup or chili has lasted that long, I can go with three servings over three days. But he's pretty consistent in liking two servings only, two days in a row, with the caveat that he likes seconds, where I'm more likely to have one serving per day. He also likes the same breakfast every morning, unless I'm fixing, in which case he'll eat whatever I'm inspired to cook, multigrain blueberry pancakes, oatmeal, or cheesy scrambled eggs with green chili, my most common deviations to name just a few. If he's fixing, it's raspberries with cream blend from the co-op in a bowl with half a banana neatly sliced. The leftover half a banana, however, has been a point of contention. His need to have only a half a banana appeared suddenly one day, and not so long ago. He cuts the banana in half, no matter what size the whole banana. When he made such a seismic shift to the very act of deciding now and forever to eat only half bananas, I tested the strength of his plan by finding both the tiniest and largest bananas available. <laughs> no difference. The tiny one was still subjected to the act of having... I pointed out that the whole tiny banana was far less than half the large one. He wouldn't entertain this profundity. 
The point being that he had decided to add only half bananas to his granola. Period. But of course I had him on that. The uneaten half has to live somewhere in the kitchen, somewhere in the world. I insisted that God made bananas a single serving of fruit and refused to take up eating his other half banana just because it exists. I know that if I eat things just because they exist, I become the human garbage disposal, eating all leftover items, everyone's this and that. He said he'd take care of it. Hmm. Sometimes he wraps the uneaten half carefully in plastic and puts it in the fridge. There is a slim chance he will remember it before another half gets set beside it. Is this a subversive way to keep me overweight? The banana is pretty obvious, but sometimes I have to hit on just the right question, like when he was smoking designer pot with my brother. Are you extremely depressed? Or are you getting glaucoma? Didn't get any response, but catching him red-handed provided me with, really? You guys are getting stoned and keeping it a secret. My brother has since moved to Galveston, but none of that matches the disaster of setting his side table on the wrong side of the bed when we moved a dozen years ago. It took me forever to find the right question for that one. I love how Maramay examines and finds amusement in one of her husband's idiosyncrasies. Maramay Moffat is a poet and a memoirist who has a lifelong love affair with New Mexico, the blue hollyhocks growing up adobe walls in Talpa, the view of the gorge from Taos, the beavers in the creek in Vallecitos, and mostly the sun almost every single day. She has taught writing from preschool to college and online through the Story Circle Network, a writing school for women. She's at work on her third book, Poems Primarily Linked by Some Aspect of Addiction and Recovery. Her most recent book, a memoir called Free Love, Free Fall, Scenes from the West Coast Sixties, was published last year. Our final piece comes from John Tobias of our San Diego chapter. In Painted Trees, he gives us an emotional portrait of a young man struggling to adapt to his grandmother's gradual decline, the way a shared reality becomes splintered by her confusion at his responsibilities and the awareness it all awakens in him. And he does all of it with 15 seconds to spare. Lee holds his grandmother's hand as he leads her to the back porch. He thinks about how her hand feels like tissue paper. Her voice is soft and raspy like sandpaper on velvet. She talks like she's already a ghost. I don't believe you, Laura says. Mama, we're back in Oregon. Look at the woods outside, Lee says. He opens the door. The back porch is shadier than it normally is. It is summer in Texas, but somehow it is cooler. I need my glasses, she says. Lee walks his grandmother to a bench seat. He looks at the cardboard and drywall trees he has made. They stand much higher than the fence and block the views of the neighbors' homes. He notices the paint smears of green and brown, and he tucks Laura's glasses deeper into his pocket. See, we're back home, just like you wanted. Laura lights a Virginia Slim and inhales deeply. She looks younger when she smokes. Looks like she is listening to good jazz. Maybe at one point the bench she is sitting on was a piano. Instead of a loose-fitting nightgown, she wears red. All red and a spotlight hits her and everyone in the room feels like they were just kissed by brake lights. I can, hear, I can still hear the cars on the overpass, Lee. Maybe I've never been old before, but I ain't dumb. Mamma, that's just the wind. Without his help, she would never make it down the steps to touch the trees. From where she sat, Lee was confident. She couldn't be too sure what she was looking at. Boy, just give me my glasses. Lee doesn't move. 
He fills himself with the fear of growing old, watches as she stares at the makeshift trees in her backyard. He thinks about dinner last night and how she stared at him over turkey and potatoes and very calmly asked him who he was and what did he do with her horse. Why, Alan, I don't think I've seen you since Bill kicked the bucket, she said shortly after, her gaze so dead her eyes might have been painted on. Lee made a fist under the table to keep the tears in. She smacked her knee as soon as she noticed the wet shrink wrap tighten around his eyes and laughed. Boy, I'm just joking. You and your dad were always so emotional. Dad died before I was born, he reminded her. You look just like him, Laura said. I'm only kidding. I've never been old before, and I'm just trying to enjoy it. The memory of the night before is broken by Laura asking once again for her glasses. I don't know where they are, Mama. Get me some water and have a look, Lee. Lee disappears into the house and comes out with two glasses of ice water. Lee refills the glasses three more times throughout the day. It is night. The porch light adds new lines to her face. There are spots that he hadn't noticed before. Little smudges, signs of aging. Maybe it's a trick of the light. I know this ain't home, she says. If you say so, Lee replies. Laura lights another slim, and she looks young again. John Tobias is an SDSU graduate and poet living in El Cajon, California. And I don't know if he paints trees, but he certainly has a way with words. Dime Stories was founded by novelist Amy Wallen and is now managed by Jennifer Simpson. Dime Stories chapters meet every month in Albuquerque, New Mexico, Orange County, California, and San Diego, California. If you'd like to start a chapter in your town, write us through the contact page of our website, www.dimestories.org, where you can also find hundreds of Dime Stories archive, including the ones from this episode. And a special thank you to Scott Holmes, who composes the music we use in all our episodes. Learn more about his work at scottholmesmusic.com. Life is a series of moments, and any of them could be a Dime Story. Get out there and start writing yours today, and thanks for listening.